Ladies and gentlemen, my name's Glenn Carlson. You're listening to The Dent Podcast. We believe it's the role of every entrepreneur to make a dent in the universe. And in this podcast, I talk to influencers and leaders that are using their businesses, that are using their skills to be able to stand out, scale up, so they can make a dent in the universe. And I unpack what they do in a way that you can apply. In this conversation, I'm talking to David Jennings. He is the author of Systemology, brand new book coming out, forward by Michael E. Gerber. Uh, for those of you that would know, uh, the author of the famous E-Myth uh, series. So, David's journey is a long one, and I'll let him kind of unpack the the journey that helped him to really understand and develop the power of systems in his own business. The short story, uh, he built and sold a very successful company, decided that systems were his gift to the world, not so much for businesses over sort of 100 employees, but for that, those smaller businesses where the founder tends to find themselves stuck in the middle of fires and team and all these kind of issues where it just feels like you are the tail on the dog of the business, if you like. And so we get into um, the methodology inside the book systemology. There's seven key steps. We break down pretty much everything there is to know, the common mistakes about building systems in your business. We get into some cool stuff like why sending your team on long vacations is a great idea. Uh, we get into uh, some of the exceptions to the rules where over-systemizing can actually start to work against you, why you shouldn't be trying to think like McDonald's, um, how to overcome team resistance and create buy-in to change and innovation of new systems and processes. We talk about the difference between systems and automation and why people are often automating way too soon. Uh, we talk about why flowcharts suck. There is so much gold in this. Uh, you can check out the book, Systemology. Just go to systemology.com forward slash book. Uh, I'm a big fan. I do a lot of work with David. He's joining uh, the mentor faculty at Dent. So, I'm really, really excited to introduce you, uh, not just to the power of systems, but to the power of David Jennings. So, let's get into the chat. Hey, David. Hey, Glenn. How are you? Thanks for having me. I've oh, been looking forward to this. Mate, I'm excited. Uh, congrats. The book. Thank you. Systemology. Yes. Woo. This yeah, is, a lot this, of work. I'm a, looking forward to it. This is a total it. fabrication for those watching it. I, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I have got the legit one over uh, here. So I this is, I I, I, I'm, I'm meaning to send you the hard copy. So. With, uh, but I, with, I, extra points for effort, though. Well, yeah, awesome. right. I cut it up and everything, right? But uh, with COVID, I wasn't going to get a legit one in time. And I've wanted to kind of geek out with you on this since I knew you were writing it because, I mean, from our perspective, producing key people of influence, we, we see that one of the fastest ways to grow is to show up as the go-to brand. But the more influence you build, the more growth you experience, the more complexity you create and complexity is the enemy of influence <laughs> because all of a sudden you start to drown. And so I think the two just marry yeah. so perfectly. Uh, but how did it 
start? Like, where, what's the origin story? How did you become the systems guy? For me, I realized that systems have always been in my blood. I was interested in stock market education many moons ago, and you used to design trading systems, which were just predefined entry and exit points and money management. Uh, and you would think of all of that up front. So that really was a system. And then I had a, a rock and roll clothing music store that we owned, that we franchised. So we developed, a. it was effectively, if you've got an Australian audience, um, it was off your tree, but parent friendly. So we didn't have all the bong paraphernalia and the drugs and it was just rock and roll, like ACDC, Metallica. Uh, and our plan was to franchise that business. So um, we actually franchised our first store. So I had systems there. And then the last business where I got stuck for the longest was the digital agency, Melbourne SEO Services. Uh, that's how we first how got we to know each other because part of that brand, there was a the sister company, which was Melbourne Video Production, but I win that business, that was an interesting one. I got stuck, even though I loved systems and I understood it, I had all this baggage around how and why I couldn't systemize that business. I thought this business is different. It's an online business. Everything's changing so quickly. So how could I write a system that would very quickly become out of date? I was worried that because we created a digital agency that writing systems and processes would remove the creativity and turn my staff into robots, whereas that was kind of part of my competitive advantage. I thought because I was the subject matter expert, I thought that I was going to have to be the one that creates all the systems and the processes. So when I got to the digital agency, I stayed working in it for about 10 years too long. And it wasn't until I had the defining moment which was finding out we were pregnant, as you know, just recently. That that's yeah. a big life changer. <laughs> well, I thought, gears. Wow. I, yeah. <laughs> I thought I, I don't want to be the dad who's always too busy, too busy to play sports, walk the kids to school. Like I was working very long hours, and I thought that's the point at which I needed to find out. Well, how do you build a business that works without you? And are I know systems were the way. I knew intuitively knew it. Like I'd done it before. Uh, and I started to retest all of these assumptions that I had only to find out that I really just made them up in my head. And then I got used to it, being the guy that would solve all the problems. You know, clients would come to me with questions, I'd answer them. Staff, they came to me with questions or problems. Hey, can you solve this problem? And I would have the answer. Of course I can. I'm a so business owner. <laughs> That's right. And I trained everybody where I, I made them feel like, this was the right thing to do. And then everybody just got really good at asking me questions. And then then I was trapped. And uh, yeah, I, I just got stuck there like like I know many business owners do. And we're gonna we're gonna unpack the book. Like I, I wanna go through because I think every single chapter is built around a really powerful insight that I think will be very useful for our listeners. And you know, I think knowing this stuff all the way from whether you're a sole trader all the way up to a very established large scale business. I mean, it, it's it's less about the tactics and the software and the technology, as you say, a lot. It's more mm. about the, the fundamental principles of systemology. So I'm excited to get into that. But I have to kind of bring up, it's a bit of a coup, right? Because you've got Michael E. Gerber, who we could call him the, the great, great, granddaddy perhaps of business yes. systems author of the e-myth which is a pretty iconic book not just on the cover of your book uh saying that this book is extraordinary 
but also writing the foreword. Now, there's I've got my own kind of thing about the e-myth that I want to kind of bring up, but first I'd love to kind of get a sense of how did that come about because yeah. it's almost it almost feels a little bit like handing handing across the torch. Yeah, it definitely feels like the universe just uh, opened up for me uh, once we'd systemized the business and presented me with this huge opportunity. And I feel like that really is the biggest thing that systems enable is when you systemize your business, the business owner can take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. Because most business owners, usually they're too busy. And even if the Oprah of their industry came and knocked on their door and said, I would love to work with you on a dream project. Most business owners will go, I can't step away from my business for more than two days. Um, I I can't work on this project, let alone all of the opportunities they don't see. There's probably thousands of opportunities that have circled past business owners and they don't notice. And for me, my big opportunity came uh, and where I see what systems allowed me to do was to take advantage when that opportunity presented itself. So I'm here I am. I'm just uh, working from home in Melbourne, Australia. I get an email. This is when I was running Melbourne SEO Services uh, that just said uh, it was from a lady called Luz Delia Gerber. I didn't know the first name, definitely knew the surname. Uh, and uh, she said, call me. And she had just had a phone number. That's all it was. It was a reply to a, an email that I'd sent out. And it was, uh, I knew they were in, because uh, Michael Gerber wrote the book, The E-Myth, just for those who are unaware, you definitely need to, to Google that. As, as Glenn said, it's pretty much the, he's the godfather of business systems. And I, I picked up the phone because I knew they were in California and it was first thing in the morning, it was about 7am my time, so I knew it was their afternoon, called it. And then when I spoke to her, she was just absolutely gushing over my work. She'd come across um, some videos that she'd watched online. Um, she was forwarding them over to Michael. She said, look, I don't really know how I came across you exactly, um, but I followed your book launch. Now, this speaks straight to KPI to show you the power and the influence of writing a book and why it's the centerpiece to what they do. The, the first book I had written, um, and this is after sort of working along KPI for some time, was um, Authority Content. So I wrote that book. She saw me do the book launch for Authority Content. And she said, I love what you did there. Michael's 80. He's written the last book in his E-Myth series called Beyond the E-Myth. Uh, and she said, uh, for the first time, we don't want to go through a book publisher. We want to go through uh, and self-publish. All the previous books were done through HarperCollins, but him being 80, we want to make sure that we maintain the rights. He's thinking about legacy. He wants control of the work to make sure it gets all handed over properly. So she said, I want I want to do a self-published, um, uh, uh, yeah, self-published and self-launched book. I saw what you did with authority content. I would love for you to do Michael's book. And I said, well, I don't really launch books, but, you know, I was a bit starstruck. I'm like, uh, 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 okay. Uh, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll help launch Michael's book. And she said, look, there's a few catches. One, uh, it's going to take three months, like three months to launch this book. Um, which for me, when I did authority content, I did it about six months. And to do a a full launch of that size in three months, I knew as soon as she said it, that it was a a mountain of work, like very long hours. And she said, "Um, is that something that you'd be able to commit to? And I said, oh, look, look, I, I would just love the opportunity. Not only that, I said, I'll volunteer for the position because I would love to get mentored under 
uh, Michael, and I think it'd be a great opportunity for us to work together. His work has had a huge impact on my work and uh, it'd be just a great opportunity. So long story short, um, the three months just went by like that. I was fortunate that I'd systemized my digital agency to the point where my CEO, she was running it. So, um, and that literally had happened, you know, we had the baby, I'd already taken a little bit of time off. Uh, Melissa was running it. I was probably checking in about once every month with her just to look at the key dashboards and metrics and stuff like that. And I went full time into working for Michael's book. And I've never seen people fall over themselves, you know, quicker to try and work with Michael. He got, we got him on loads of podcasts and there were write-ups and it was such a fun project to work with. And they opened so many doors for me incredibly quickly. Um, and the book, it launched really well. It was the first book that Michael launched that became an Amazon bestseller in 24 hours because they've never done book launches before. All they'd done is just put it up and hope that people would buy. And uh, what I didn't realize is they were, uh, as I kind of went down this, actually, I'll leave leave one or two of those things that I learned along the way because we'll, we'll mention those. But the book was a huge success, became the Amazon bestseller. He invited me over to... Um, Carlsbad. He was running the last event, um, live event for his thing called the Dreaming Room, which is kind of like his premiere program that he runs in in Carlsbad, California. And I'd called in a few favors for this book launch. So we bought this, uh, not bought, uh, hired a, a Mac Daddy house that we found on Airbnb, one of those ones hanging off the rocks in La Jolla overlooking the ocean. And I had a few of my good friends who helped me with the launch come to that. And then we went to Michael's event um, and uh, that was fantastic. Came to the end and they said, look, we'd like you to stay on. Michael's running this mastermind afterwards um, for his future legacy. And it's, they'd invited all of these lead uh, business people, like the who's who in business. And the plan was to get Tony Robbins to facilitate this mastermind. But at the 11th hour, they couldn't get Tony. And so they didn't have a facilitator. So I stuck my hand up and I said, I'll facilitate the group. So here I am uh, in Michael Gerber's presidential suite in this swanky hotel in um, Carlsbad and just with the who's who of business that we circled around and we just kind of spent two days masterminding what we're going to do with Michael's future legacy and work. And it was strange because he kind of took a back seat and let the room and, and me kind of drive it. Uh, and what I find amazing, talk about opportunities falling in your lap, um, I didn't know Michael Gerber four months prior to that. And here I was in this presidential suite leading, facilitating a group talking about the future of his work. Uh, and then at the end of that, his wife said, we would like you to run the company. And my jaw just hit the floor. And I was like, uh, uh. Yeah, I didn't uh, know that part and of I it. I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know how, how to respond. Um, and then I... Uh, there was no way it was going to happen because my wife, uh, we'd have to move to the LA. She wasn't going to leave Australia. She's got all of her family in Melbourne and we've just had the, the young kids. and It just wasn't the right timing. But um, So I, I declined the offer, but I've, I've been working with them on lots of different projects and helping out. We still catch up today. Uh, and, and like you said, the, the writing of the book that Michael was you know, very gracious to write um, it did. It kind of felt a little bit that way, this passing of the baton. He started to appreciate some of the work that I'm doing. And all of it was made possible by building a systemized business that got me in a situation 
where when an opportunity presents itself, I could take advantage of it. And that's really what I'm teaching with systemology is how to create space for business owners. It's as much as there's all the other stuff and the benefits that come from systemization, if you can create enough space for business owners, that's where the huge wins happen. It's it's a, sometimes I feel like it's a little bit like snakes and ladders. Like you'll just plod along and you'll move the right steps. Occasionally you'll land on a ladder and you'll have the opportunity to jump up 50 levels. The Michael Gerber for me was my 50 levels jump up. I skipped all of that earlier stuff. I couldn't have planned for that. Very serendipitous. The universe just delivered it um, to me. I needed to be ready to take advantage of it. And business owners need to be ready when these opportunities do happen because you can't plan for them. All you can be is ready. But that's my my Gerber story. Cool story. Very cool story. <laughs> Very cool story. I um, So one of the things that I talk a lot about, obviously, is this idea of how to expand your sphere of influence. And I have a lot of people say, oh, I I don't want to be influential. I don't want to be out the front. I don't want to be known. Uh, I just, I need to build more systems. I need to build more processes. And it's almost like they kind of, they're using it almost as a little bit of an excuse to hide. And so I could not, have the freedom I have in my business or the scale that we have in our business. I mean, we've got 50 people around the world, 12 different time zones, three to four different companies now. Like, you know, it could very, very easily be a mess. So I am all for systems. But but often there's this battle that I see in, in people's heads with this idea of leadership and visible leadership versus systemizing and almost leading from the back. Do you see that at all? Mm. Yeah, and there's a really good book that's worth reading. Um, you probably come across it called Rocket Fuel. It talks about uh, this relationship. It's by a gentleman called Gino Wickman, which, as a side note, he also read this and said it was a must for my systemology book. I'm a big fan of Gino's uh, work. Uh, but uh, that relationship, Michael Gerber talks about it, the leader and the visionary. Uh, and Oftentimes, it's one of the biggest reasons business owners have a challenge with systemization and why I believe it's one of the least well-addressed parts of business is because it actually systems lives in the blind spot of most business owners because they're big picture thinkers. They see a problem in the world that they want to solve. They create the product or the solution. They get out there. They hustle. They do what they can just to get it up and running, to get the results for the client, to get the initial traction. Now, I think uh, what I love about the work that you guys do is we allow the person to get the traction, then we layer on the authority that comes from becoming a key person of influence. That right there is the magnifier. Then you introduce systems which layers over the top, and that what that does is it increases your capacity. So now you can be a key person of influence and you can drive all of this traffic and awareness into the business and then you can actually service it because I, I sometimes see as well sometimes business owners when they start to get a bit of success they also can sabotage themselves because they 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 know if they sell or they sell too heavy or they get too many clients on board then that's going to equal a truckload of work for them they're also just tired and then they have to deliver and do the work so it's systems is a great way if you believe in your products and services if you know 
uh, you are here to make a difference and the work that you're doing makes a difference for your clients. You want to be out there selling it as strongly as you can and have the confidence to know that your team behind you will do the best at delivering that. So you can feel proud to be out the front actually selling. It's funny. I always thought I wanted to run my business. Like I want to run a good business. And, and it, it's interesting because in my mind, at least, there's a very big difference between growing a business and running a business. And I found out I'm good at growing a business, but I am terrible at running a business. And that's what I loved about your book is because it really, it really breaks the mythology that I or the business leader, the key person of influence, the visionary, whatever name you want to put on the founder, there's often this kind of mythology that they're the ones that have to build the systems. They're the ones that have to make it all work and run. And it's kind of as you point to in the book, the, the moment that that shift gets reversed, it actually yes. opens up a whole lot of space like you were talking about. And I guess the, the point that I see that you bring up is it's got to be both. You, you've, you've got to lead from the yes. front. You've got to build that authority and credibility to cut through the noise because there's no point systemizing a business that can't get any traction in the world, right? Um, and so I yeah. see them both coming together really, really well. And and I think actually they both amplify each other because one creates visibility and inbound opportunity. The other creates time and space and simplification. And so you get the two of them cycling between each other and it gets pretty cool. My uh, business, uh, like the yin to my yang, which was Melissa in the digital agency, uh, when she kind of came in and took over that back end, I used to think I was a good people manager. It wasn't actually until I saw a good manager come in, a strong leader who could lead the team, that I realized that wasn't my sweet spot. I thought it was because I got the business up and running and all the cl the staff liked me and you know I, I wanted to be liked by um, clients. And I think that made me a little bit of a people pleaser when it came to uh, the people that I was engaging with. And that helped grow the business to a certain size. But then it tapped out, like I reached that capacity. And when she came in, uh, she shook things up and she was very strong where I remember, you know, I thought I was above the law. And whenever I was working on something, I always thought that it was the most important thing. So I would go to team members and I'd say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm speaking on Dent next week. I've got to have this graphic ready. Can you, you know, I've, it's two days turnaround, but I need you to get this graphic ready and over to me and then so I can send it over. And I would go direct to the team member and um, make it an urgent priority because anything that Dave's working on, of course, that must be urgent priority. I did that Everyone's a few times and then Melissa- suddenly got whiplash. Yeah, that's right. M Melissa, um, a few, I did a few times, enough for Melissa to go, look, we have a bit of a process here. You you get it into Asana, we delegate it, we have a look at what workloads are like. We don't want to throw out client work and missed deliveries. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And I'd already put her in charge, but I was undermining her by going straight to the staff. It happened about two or three times. And then she wrote something in Asana with this in almost capital letters for important for everybody, tagged the entire team. And she said, next time Dave comes to you with an urgent task that needs to be done and he's not really going through the appropriate channels or assigning it correctly, ignore him, no matter how urgent it seems to be. Uh, and that awesome. just 
how embarrassing for me as the business owner to basically be get put in my place. Um, and, and it was a big blow to the ego, but then it, it learned, it showed me that I'm not above the rules. Melissa has a system or a process. And she said, look, think of it like this way. Um, when you come into the house, you need to take off your shoes. You need to be kind and respectful. Follow the rules when you're in the house. When you're out of the house, you can go get muddy. You know, with my my EA, um, I don't follow the same structure. I operate like a visionary and I'm throwing stuff left, right and centre and she's catching it. Uh, but, but when I go in for the rest of the team, I have to follow the process. Um, and, and I think... Lessons like that that came from her got me to realize that um, it's okay for me to be who I am. And even though it's like Michael Gerber, this here we go. This is the dirty little secret of Michael Gerber that I learned <laughs> while working with Michael Gerber. Um, Michael, he is not a detail-orientated systems thinker. He doesn't like documenting the systems and the processes. He is a creator of the first order he can pull an idea out of the universe and then create it he, he that's what he does and that's his well, unique thing so even though the, he and is that's the irony guy. of both of you right the irony of both of you you've got the you've got the systems engine in the book you've got the process i mean you have a whole company that's built on organizing businesses using technology and yet you're the creative authors, speakers, commentators, visionaries, podcasters. You know, you're kind of much more in your flow and in your zone out in the world sharing the message than with your head stuck in a spreadsheet. Yes. And then you'll find the person who loves having the head stuck in the spreadsheet because I think every discussion I have with business owners, we all agree systems are important. What it is, is they're never urgent. So the business owner never gets to it. And it's something that just stays on the to-do list and they think we'll get to it down the road. But as the business grows and the more team members that come on board, the harder it becomes to change the culture. So you actually, you as a business owner, you want to appreciate the value of the systems of processes, recognize that maybe you're not the person, but find the team members who are and empower them to do that job and that role because it is critical that you bake this systems thinking in as early as possible because every new team member that comes on board, uh, if you've got systems and processes in place, that's all they've ever known. Oh, this is the way that we do things here. Um, the, the resistance to systems and change um, always comes from your existing staff when they go, oh, we've always done it this way. Why do we have to change? So that's oftentimes why there's resistance is, you know, the, the business owner, they're not necessarily a systems thinker. They're trying to insert them into the, to the team and then there's resistance from the team and then they try a few times. It doesn't quite work and they go, hey, I'm not a systemized person. I'm never going to get systems and they just give up on it. And, and that's the trap because every business at some point needs to install systems if you want to grow. There, there is no other way to do it. So you have to learn how to master this and systemology is about how can I make this happen without the business owner being the one that drives it? What are the first systems you have to get in place? How do you go for the minimum viable product? And, you know, because that's the other thing I found, um, work like Six Sigma and Lean, which deals with systems and processes, they're, they've all been designed for 
big big companies, 100-plus staff, manufacturing. It just does not translate to the small business. Uh, and that's that's where I felt this gaping hole was. I, you know, I read the E-Myth. I got all excited by systems and processes. I read Scaling Up and Traction, and I thought, wow, these are great books. They all made the case for systems. But we all know systems are important. The, the question now is, where do you get started? And that's we designed a seven-step process called systemology to go, great, we'll start here. This is how you involve your team. Here's how you extract it and make it easy, all those sorts of things. So we, I want to go through because I've got a few I've got a few little notes on the method uh, and I'd love to unpack it one at a time so people can get some perspective, they can get some depth, um, but I also want them to get the book. So just let them know now how can they yes. make this happen. Yeah, head to systemology.com forward slash book. Depending on when you're listening to this, it'll be on Amazon. Uh, we've got the audio version. I know you're listening to the audio right now, so you probably enjoy audio. Um, oh, they might the be watching version. it on, on Facebook or YouTube or something oh, yeah. with the video. However however you want to uh, consume it, yeah. But there's hardcover, Kindle, and book, uh, and, and, yeah, through systemology.com forward slash book. Uh, it outlines everything. I think whenever I write a work, because this is my second book now, I want to have it useful and complete. You can take the book, everything I have, the IP is in here. You don't have to do anything else. I'll outline and give you the entire process. We'll unpack some of it here, but the book's the best place to start. Perfect. So th the thing I like, broadly speaking, you've, you've got this pyramid. Do you just want to hit the that pyramid that you talk about that kind of goes from struggle all the way up to scale just for some maybe some broader perspective for everyone? And then we can kind of get into the steps in the systems to move up that hierarchy. That's it there. Yeah. Yes, there we go. That's right. So if you're watching the video. So the, with all of the companies that we've been working with, with, I've realized there are these four stages that businesses go through. And I call it the four stages of business systemization. The first stage, which is at the base of the pyramid, is where most people get started when you get started in business. We call it the survival mode. And survival mode usually uh there's a few characteristics the it almost feels like your firefighting mode the team doesn't really like systems and processes you're just jumping from wherever the issue is in the business and the business owner they're chasing the work to get the work they they get the work, then they're doing the work, and then once the work's finished, they've got to go out there and chase and get more work. Um, it's They might have some team members, whether it's some contractors or part-timers, but there's no real way. Oftentimes at this point, they're still trying to find product-to-market fit. It's kind of that startup mode, and the business owner is the biggest bottleneck. But the biggest characteristic of that bottom stage is that oftentimes the business owner doesn't have the insight that they are the bottleneck. Yeah. They just think, oh, I have to do everything. But to move up to the next level, when you realize that you're the bottleneck, you actually start to shift into the next level up, which is stationary. When you're stationary, um, as the name sort of starts to uh, suggest, um, usually you've got key person dependency. And that's where all of the knowledge is trapped in a few key team members' heads. You kind of have some way of doing things, but 
if Sally isn't here to issue out that invoice on Tuesday, it's not going to get done. And we have to wait until Sally comes back after she's had her time off because it's in her head and she is the only one who knows how to do it. There is no backup if Sally is sick or time off or anything. Uh, and the that's, that's one of the other big characteristics at that stationery where you, you kind of just feel like you're moving sideways, you're, you're not getting any huge wins. The, the next level up beyond that is then scalable. Now, scalable, that's where you start to extract out some of the knowledge uh, in the, the previous step, the stationary, you, you extract the knowledge out of some of those key team members and it moves you up into the next step, um, which is this scalable, where you're starting to get parts of your business documented. Not all of it. So it's a little bit patchy. You know, you've got some systems here or there. You might have some on some desktops and some in a Dropbox folder and some scattered in a Google Drive on different computers. You know, different team members are doing things, but there's no real consistency. And your tools are a little bit clunky at this stage. Maybe you kind of use a project management software. Maybe you're using Dropbox. Uh, trying to store your systems and processes in there as Word files. It's a little bit unorganized. But you have got some people that are in, like they've bought into the idea of systems and processes because um, you've documented some of the things they get it, they understand, but then you've got some people that aren't. So that's that scalable stage. And I think a lot of people get trapped in that stage because they kind of feel like, well, scalable is good enough. Like I'm, I'm growing, I'm kind of, I've got some systems in place, I'm sort of systemized, but you have to constantly remind your staff to follow the process at that stage. That's that's a big problem because because they're not systems thinkers. It's it's constantly reminding. It's more like um, you you run an adult daycare centre. You you've got rules, but you've got to kind of keep following, telling everybody to follow the rules. And it's not until you get up to the top level, um, and, and the way that you move from from scalable to the last stage, which is saleable, at the top of the pyramid. Um, to, to get there, you organise your knowledge and the, the, the characteristics up here are you've got all parts of your business documented, you've got the tools that now click all together. If team members have a question, they know where to go first that isn't um, the business owner or key team members. They first look to where the knowledge base is for the business and, and you're able to link that knowledge base to where tasks are assigned. So it's very clear who is doing what by when, and then there is outlined expectations of what that's done. And the the biggest insight that happens here, like once you start to optimise things, you reach a point where the staff go, this is the way that we do things here. When, when you reach that stage, you know there's a shift. And what you're looking for with systemization is a cultural shift where the team recognize that you run systems a certain way and you build systems into your recruitment process, your onboarding process. It might even be as part of your company values that you look for system solutions. And that, once that happens, that's when everything lights up. And I, I struggled for a little while on what to call it. Initially, I said it was called saleable. Um, and I did stick with that. But I suppose to be clear, you you don't have to sell your business, but you want to build it as though it were saleable. And a saleable business, something that is worth the most, is something that works not dependent on anybody. 
So that way the potential acquirer goes, if the business owner leaves, if the key staff leave, this business still works. And now that is a valuable business. Absolutely spot on. So we've I've done a fair bit of research. I've, I've got a poster here into the entrepreneur journey as well. And it's interesting, right? You've got the struggle zone there. That's where we would call stationary, which is yes. essentially scaling inefficiency, right? So you, you're growing, but you're not really getting anywhere and it's just creating more. And so the idea is how do we move up into that period, into that zone where you've got the efficiency of influence, the efficiency of systems, you've got time and space out of the business, you've given autonomy to your team. But one of the mistakes I used to make was I would give autonomy to my team, but they didn't have the tools, the systems, the processes to be able to turn that autonomy into anything meaningful or consistent. And so I end up getting this feedback loop that giving my team freedom and autonomy led to, led to bad outcomes. And there's a there's a big misconception mm. in the market that team equal more chaos, more headaches, more frustrations. And so Often they'll go and bias themselves to go, well, what I just need is technology and process. And I think, you know, the thing that I kind of love about what you're bringing to the book and to the forefront, especially with your first book, is you need credibility in your industry, but you also need a team that's engaged and bought in. You also need to be able to give them autonomy, but you also need to give them a process to filter that autonomy through mm. to be able to optimize for results. You get those sort of elements coming together, you know, and there's not too much more beyond that other than, yep. you know, a bit of that X as factor, a bit, of, a bit of purpose and a bit of drive, and you've got yourself a rocking business. Yeah, and if, if you are solving a genuine problem for 100%. your clients and they will pay you for that and you're delivering the value, you have a recipe for, for rocket fuel and I think what I find interesting um, as kind of people start this journey, when they first hear about systemization, a lot of them think, oh, I need to systemize like McDonald's. And I always, it's actually one of the last myths I address mm. in the book that you don't want to systemize like McDonald's is today. That would be like trying to compete in the Olympics. Imagine McDonald's. They are the lean, mean, systemized machine who's trained their entire life and they are just an absolute machine. And here you are, or at least this is the way that I felt, I was a bit like a flabby couch potato. And I was thinking, do I go up head to head McDonald's and try and systemize? <laughs> yes, that's, that's right. Um, and, and then I, I had this realisation, you don't systemize like McDonald's is today. You systemize the way McDonald's was 60 years ago. You, you give yourself some homework and you go hire the founder, the movie, and you watch that and you realise that when they got started, they were moving the counters around and thinking, where do they put the milkshake, milkshake makers? And, oh, the fryer needs to go over here. Oh, that's got to be near the drive through window. And that's how systems start. So you, the other thing is I remember hearing um, the... Um, the owner of Netflix, he said, oh, you know, when they got bitten by the systemization bug, he said, oh, we started to create systems for everything. We wanted to make sure that the business was dummy proof. But then he said, we found out once it was dummy proof, only dummies wanted to work here. Mm. So there's a fine line between over systemizing. You still want great people. And I wouldn't go to the point where everything just takes all of the thought out of it or you remove that, all that systems should be doing is 
make sure that things that need to happen on a regular basis to a certain standard for key parts of business Get that part documented. If you have to invoice a certain way, if you're doing lead generation or your sales process a certain way, get that down and document that piece, but also give room for great staff to do great things. Like I I don't want a team of robots. I think it's the magic, like you said, great staff, good systems, good product, line that together, then you've got the right recipe. Because you've kind of got, I don't know if this is your language or not, but you've kind of got the systems layer which is designed to give scope and flexibility within some constraints. But then you've got automation. You know, if it gets to the point where, you know, it really is monkey see, monkey do, it's likely there's a bot or a robot or a piece of software that can actually be programmed to do that. And, you know, I think at least it's important to have a, a mindset that there is a difference between a system uh, or a process and automation. Would you agree? Mm, Yeah, definitely. And I, in the book by design, I tried to simplify the language because you're right. There is also so many different ways that these can be referenced. People say SOPs, standard operating procedures, Mm. process, workflow, how-to documents. What that does is, and while there is differences in each of these different things, it leads to a lot of confusion because you might say to someone, I need a how-to document, but they're thinking, hey, I need to create a flow chart or a process. And then now you're talking different language and there's no real connect or there's a disconnect. So I use the word system. And by system, all I mean is a series of linear steps that when followed produce a consistent outcome. Now, that works at the micro level and it works at the macro level. So, the micro level might be a detailed system on how do I issue an invoice out of zero through to a client and that might be very detailed. But then you could also have something at a higher level which might be an overview system. Maybe it's a system that explains at a high level the key milestones that you go through when you're delivering your work. So, I I try and um, explain things through the lens of systems. And I often also say as well, start, this addresses your point around the automation. I'll say, um, start with human automation first. Before you try and get the robots to do it, you need to make sure that you are automating the right thing. And I know you look to, um, Google's a great example of this. You would think that Google being the big tech powerhouse that they are, that they would just automate everything and have robots for everything. Uh, But what they do is when they want to make a change to the search engine algorithm, they come up with a hypothesis first and they say, great, we believe if we look at this factor, this factor and this factor, it's going to improve the search results. Then they run that test and they get human reviewers to look at the results and say, did this improve this? And it's not until they've proven it with the human eye that then then say, great, now let's codify that and put it into a machine. So I always say, be careful Um, doing the automation too early if you haven't yet figured out what it is that you need to systemize. And I think oftentimes people will go for that bright, shiny object. I see it with flow charts. People, when they start systemizing, they create (laughs) One of the things that I highlighted, you're like, flow charts suck. And I'm like, oh, I want to know about this. I hate flow charts. (laughs) Um, Flow charts come last because where flowcharts get created usually is from a systems geek, someone who loves doing systems and process and they get into this fancy software and they print out this flowchart and then they share it with the rest of the team. The team starts using it and they go, 
oh, that's not quite right. I think we need to move this, this here, that there. It becomes immediately out of date. The systems geek is the only person who knows how to update it. And now you've got this out of date flowchart. You're much better off starting with simple, do text bullet points first, and not until you've solidified your method do you worry about building the flowchart and things like that. Again, otherwise you end up doing work that you might just end up throwing out the window anyway. All right, let's let's sequence this out a bit. Um, let's say uh, someone listening, they've got between 5 and 15 employees, or they hope to, um, but let's say they're in a situation where they certainly couldn't sell it, it's relying on them, they couldn't take three months off, uh, they're probably more in the management layer, uh, so they're, they're kind of yep. spending time managing people, managing problems. They might have got themselves a little bit of distance from sales, marketing and delivery, but they're still probably pretty... Like they need to be there. They need to be making this thing happen. They've essentially created an architecture around themselves that scaled their skills, talents, and expertise, but hasn't freed them from it. And I think you'd yeah. agree, for anyone listening, I think you'd agree that you know, up until this point, pretty sold on the idea of why it's important and the context of it. But how do we start? How do we use this method and this framework in the book to kind of get yeah. on the pathway yeah. and make it happen? What's step one? Step number one is define. So, systemology, uh, which is to create time, reduce errors, and scale profits with proven business systems. The first step in the process is to define, and it's seven steps. So, this um, speaks to the myth that people think when they think about mis uh, systemization, oftentimes it can be overwhelming because they think, oh, there's hundreds of parts to my business and different things that I could systemize. Where do I start? So, it's what the step number one is about. It's the 80-20. How do we find the 20% of the systems that deliver the 80% of the result? And I developed a method called the critical client flow. Someone can do it as they're watching or listening to this. It's really easy. You just grab an A4 bit of paper and in the top left-hand corner, you write down your dream customer or your dream client. Um, all you have to think about is who is the person that you enjoy working with, who pays your advertised prices, who comes back, who refers business to you, like that's your dream customer. Then underneath that, there we go. Um, so uh, Glenn's following along. The next step underneath that then is think about what is the first product or service that would be a great introduction to working with you? Like who, what do you sell that dream client first? And you, you just list that down because we, you know, it's, it's a case of how do you eat an elephant? You have to do it one bite at a time. We have to start somewhere. So your so dream would, customer. So like you, we would kind of get someone to get the key person of influence book or we might get yes. them to come along to one of our workshops or so it's that we, we would call it a product for prospects, which is yes. it's not a product for a customer. It's a taste. It's an entree. Is that the idea? Yeah, and it could be like a good example. So um, we worked with a company called Mulcani & Co. They're an accounting practice in regional Victoria that uh, service basically farmers. Their, their dream 
client or, or the primary target audience they, they worked with with these farmers and the service that they selected was like an audit. So they would audit their books first. It was a one-off fee that they could look into things and present. Uh, and then off the back of that, they could then suggest their ongoing products and services. So it's just that first thing. You want to have something where you get paid because this is about scaling the the financial side of the business. I, what I'm looking for is I want to make sure that the business can make money without key person dependency. So without depending on the business owner or any other team member for that matter. So the critical client flow, which is this process I'm about to take you through, which is the first stage in the systemology process, is a way to uncover that. Got it. So once you've identified those first So this isn't just about them looking at a customer journey type thing and going, what's currently happening and let's lock in that. You're really kind of providing some best practice in terms of this is how you should really think about structuring your business model. Exactly. And and it's also more than just the customer journey. It's almost like the business journey because you want to also address how the business delivers the products and the services. So I suppose that's the real key decision, bet- a difference between a customer journey and a critical client flow. This is um, how do we deliver that? And you just start at the top of the page. All we're looking for here, are effectively, I'm going to put boxes as we move down the page. And in each box, we don't want to use more than two or three words to explain that box. All I'm looking to do is to identify the systems that we're going to create a bit further down the journey. You only want to focus on what you're currently doing. Don't think about what you would like to be doing. So if we think first off at the top of the page, um, we start off with attention. How do people become aware of your business? Maybe you're doing SEO. Maybe you're doing LinkedIn little micro bits of content. Maybe you're speaking on podcasts. Maybe you're running ads in newspapers. Maybe there's referral. However people become aware of your business, get a few boxes and just write the words into those boxes. Then we move down to the next line. When an inquiry comes in, how does an inquiry come in? Uh, Is it through phone, email? Uh, Is it... Uh, a, a web form that's filled out. That's the next inquiry line. Next, we move down uh, the box underneath that. How do you handle, like, what does your sales process look like? And this will vary. Um, you know, if you're doing an e-commerce business, this is going to be very different from a service-based business. It, it doesn't matter, though. You might say, well, we start off by qualifying them. We have a quick qualifying call. Then we book them in on a Zoom. And then we have a Zoom. And then we issue out a proposal. And then after the proposal, we then follow them up. Whatever your piece is, it might be two or three boxes there. You might go Zoom, proposal, follow-up. Then underneath that, when they're ready to go, what happens next? We call this the money stage. Do you take half the money up front and half on completion? Do you take it all up front? What happens for you to get paid? Then the next uh, step underneath the money is how do you onboard the client? So again, you don't have to go into details. These are just bullet points. You might go, well, we get them to fill out a questionnaire and then we set them up in our project management platform. Then we go the next rung down is the delivery. It's the doing of the work. Um, now, this one here typically is the most complex, especially for service-based businesses. But again, high level just for now, just bullet points here or there. Later on, we can detail, you know, write those um, micro systems that I was talking about, the detailed ones that might sit underneath a more high level system. And then the final one is the handover uh, and, and delivering the product and basically trying to get them to either buy again 
or refer, depending on, you know, or both. Um, but that on an A4 bit of paper, if you map out that, when we get to the point where you systemize that, easy, perfect. Um, a few things will happen. Some people will get an aha moment. They'll do it and they'll go, oh, I know why we're having problems in our business now. I have this gaping hole. I don't have an onboarding process. So no wonder clients are following me up all the time and ringing me and saying, where's my work? Because you didn't tell them what the timeline looks like and set the expectation and how things are going to get delivered. All problems in business always stem back to uh, your systems and your processes and poorly defined. So if you've got problems with leads, you don't have enough lead generation systems. If you have problems converting those leads, then uh, you, you probably have a sales conversion problem, like you don't have sales system documented. If you are having problems that projects keep on blowing out, going beyond scope, you might not have a delivery system to kind of keep things on track. Um, but by just identifying just this, forget about all of the other systems you could be doing. We'll get to that further in the process, things like hiring and paying invoices and management systems and onboarding, all that stuff can come later. If you just focus on the critical client flow first, you can make it so you, you create a scalable money machine. You create a business that can deliver the core product or service without the person dependency. The and that the if scalable, you want to go- The scalable money machine. I think we just found the headline. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you are good with your, the, your marketing. So, your, what's, um, the, what's the spammiest, clickbaitiest headline we could come up with? I feel like that needs to be a T-shirt. I might get that on a <laughs> T-shirt. scalable money fun. machine. Yeah. <laughs> Quick shout-out to our sponsor, scoreapp.com. We actually acquired the company because the technology that drives the key person of influence scorecard can now drive your business. Essentially, we decided that we wanted a way to be able to provide our audience wherever they are in the world with a, a tool to be able to benchmark their ability to influence against a range of categories. It would give them deep insights as to how to be able to accelerate their entrepreneurial journey. And we started getting lots of people saying, hey, how could we do that in our industry. And so if you go to scoreapp.com right now for 40 bucks a month, you can develop your own digital scorecard, heat map, benchmarking tool that not only adds incredible value to your audience, but also generates high quality, data rich, inbound leads for your business. What's really cool is depending on how people answer the scorecard, it is going to shape your marketing on the back end. It connects with all of the major CRM platforms, whether it's Salesforce or HubSpot or Infusionsoft or Asana, and then can create customized email marketing campaigns specifically based on how people score. It is hyper personalized marketing for small business for as little as 40 bucks a month. Check it out, scoreapp.com. You can go even more, like when you think about where to get started, just use the critical client flow. That's the map, right? That we've identified the 10 to 15 systems. Now think about your business and the problems that you're having and think where does the problem exist based on the critical client flow? I don't have enough leads. I don't have enough 
sales. I don't, you know, I'm having problems with the clients. And then that helps you focus in on the critical client flow, where to get started. But the aim of the game is actually to document the critical client flow. So I love it, but I also hate it, right? So I have anxiety right now because I'm like, oh, there's too much shit to do. And I don't want to. I just, I don't want to. I'm being obstinate. And so (laughs) I want to move to the next step because this is kind of where you get in, I think, at least to the paradigm around this doesn't all have to. So if you're listening to this or watching this, you're probably the worst person to systemize your business. Is that is that unreasonable for me to say that? Say that, David. The business owner typically is the worst person in business to be documenting the systems and the processes yeah. because okay. they're always too busy and they never get to it. So if you're like me and you've just got that like ah, I'm just pissed off that I've got myself in a situation where I now need to systemize all this stuff. Where the hell does this end? What's the next step? Like how, how do we get everyone's mindset right? Yep. Because for me, that's where the liberty yep. came in my life. Yes, yeah. And so step number two in systemology is to assign. And you're exactly right. With the business owner being the worst person, We want to now think about who on the team knows how to do the steps that we just identified in the critical client flow. Now, they don't even have to do the steps amazingly well. You want to find the team member that does it um, to a great standard. So let's say you've got sales and you've got a couple of sales guys. There might be one sales guy that outperforms people. I was going to say, don't get them to do it. (laughs) Carry on. Well, no, we we don't get them to document it. Ah. That's the thing. We just... It's a two-person job, and that's what we learn in step number three. Step one is to identify the knowledge. Who are the knowledgeable workers on the team that we can extract it from? Where we can, we try and remove the business owner as much as possible, but it's going to sometimes still be involved. The key, though, wherever possible, is to get the business owner out of the equation. But it's, it's a case of just like the business owner, your best team members are also busy. And not only that, some of them aren't systems people. And if you you could rule with an iron fist and say, you document your systems or you're fired. Uh, and that is one way to do it. And I don't suggest that you do it that way. No one likes to be managed that way. I don't like writing systems. Why should I make my staff do it if they don't do it? But if you can make the process easy, we identify where the knowledge is. And then the biggest secret I learned is to make it a two-person job. And that kind of crosses into step number three. So I'll I'll jump there and then we'll see if you've got any questions that pop up from it. But step number three is the extract phase. And the extraction is- Step one is define it. Step two is assign it in terms of who's got the IP, who's got the skills, talents, expertise, who's who's best at this particular bit, sales for sales, admin for admin, for example. Um, And then step three, extraction. Talk to me. Yeah, which is to make it as easy as possible because your best team members are busy. I had this huge uh, insight uh, and I actually learned it from my work with Michael Gerber. So when he recruited me to do his book launch, part of his business is they get people to write book uh, verticals. So they've got e-myth for accountants, e-myth for lawyers, e-myth for blah, 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 insert any industry you can think of. Um, And when he finds his partner he then wanted to do book launches for them, but they've never done book launches. So what did he do? He found the expert, the consultant who knew how to do the thing 
And then they documented and watched what I did when I launched his book and they built the system off the back of that. So I thought that was a really interesting thing and it set my brain on this chain reaction. I, I ended up starting up a podcast called um, Business Processes Simplified where it, it wasn't like this um, type of uh, an interview where we started off with some backstory. All I said was, what's the biggest problem that you've got in business? And I mean, I've done one of the episodes with you so people can um, hear you go through this process. I said, what's the problem? And then how do you solve it? Tell me the steps. Then the, the guest would tell me the steps and then I'd give that recording to my team and then I'd say, now document this. This is the starting point for our systems. So with that same thinking, you now know who the knowledgeable workers are. You record them doing the thing. Now, it could be Zoom. It could be Loom. I've even, we worked with this one company. They were a, um, they cleaned roofing gutters. Um, the company was called Portavac. And they had this young gun who kind of worked out of a head office. He was a 20-something, curious, give-it-a-go kind of guy. And I said, um, we put a GoPro on him and he went out and followed one of the leads trades guys in the business for a day. He recorded him setting up the equipment. He recorded him chatting with the client, climbing up on the roof, making sure all the safety stuff was right, sending in the report to head office, recorded it all, then brought all the videos back, chopped them up into pieces and then watched the videos and pulled out the key steps, which became version one of the systems. And then he went back to the knowledgeable person and said, here's a system that I've built based on what I learned watching you to do it. Now, everybody loves to edit. No one likes to write from a blank page. So yes. you, you you would send it back to the knowledge person and they were fine to go, oh, yeah, you need to tweak this here, here and here. And just that, there's one other secret. There's two secrets. It's make it a two-person game and create a system for creating systems. Once you do that, you have some consistency in the way that you're creating your systems. You're making it easy for your staff. Uh, and that just flies you through step number three. So step four is about, well, I mean, it's about organizing, right? So it's how do we kind of now take yeah. that and where do we put it? What do we do with it? How does it not get lost? How does it not just turn into something that's in a folder or a Google Drive or a Dropbox somewhere? Um, you know, I like the myth that you talk about, which is that you, you don't need, or the myth is that you need big fancy software and, and tech. So organize. And, and for me, the big insight I had was to realize that complexity is the enemy of systemization. So it's like that idea we were talking about as well earlier with human automation, make stuff simple first. If you can't get the simple to work, you're not going to be able to get the complex to work. So I, I, there are two main areas I think you need to nail. One we call systems management software and the other one is project management software. So the project management software, Asana, Basecamp, Trello, whatever, choo choose your flavor, um, but it's about who does what by when. And then what you do is you couple that with where you're storing your systems and your processes. So you want to have a central location for them and when a task is assigned, you have a link to the system that explains what it is that they've been assigned. Because then when someone ticks it off in the project management platform, they're effectively saying, I've done it to the standard that you've outlined. That's what ticking it off means when you've got instructions in there. So from a management perspective, it becomes much easier to kind of get people back online if they're kind of going too far off track because you're kind of like the system and the process is right there. So it's, it's all about getting that software stack right. Those are 
two fundamental pieces from the systems perspective. Yes, there's a bunch of other software you're going to need. You're going to need accounting software and marketing automation and all those things. But from a systems perspective, you've just got to get those two right. People get lost in this step though, right? Like people will spend so much time, I, I mean, I know, just trying to work out what should I use, Trello or you know, Asana or whatever, and, and there's often a, a paralysis around the technology and the benefits. H- how do you, I mean, I understand the, the concept, but ha- how do you kind of circle the square of, you know, pulling the pin on a decision around a key piece of software? Yeah, and there's a few things because it will vary from industry to industry. So, I mean, I love Asana and I use that from a project management platform. Uh, we also, I talked about that company, Mulcani & Co, that we worked with earlier. They they work in the finance space, so they use a thing called Carbon. And then when I think oh, of, okay. um, you know, Portavac, they had an industry-specific trades platform that they would use for a booking job. So what I realised, I almost was going to make the recommendations in the book, and I said, hey, just use this. And then I thought, no, that's not going to work in all scenarios. So instead what I focused on, was thinking about the buying guide. What are the minimum five criteria that you've got to get right? And and I provide that in the book. And then it, you need to get your team to kind of head a bit down that rabbit hole. I would also actually suggest a couple of things. One, don't chase shiny objects. Um, don't think that more features is better because the complexity can actually kill the use of the software. Complexity creates friction Team members, systems and processes at the best of times for a lot of team members is not something they relish in. So you want to make it easy for them. If you're going to add in fancy flow charts that you tick off one thing and it automatically sets off the next thing and that fires a zappy a zap which shoots something into a Google spreadsheet that then sends a chain reaction off, like that right there, yes, that 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 is a recipe for disaster. So oh. you, you look for simple. You, uh, I, I give you that buying guide and then you let your staff do it because you really want them to drive it as well. It's, it's not uh, – oftentimes if the team is involved in something, it's more likely to be adopted. People support what it is they help to create. So if, if you kind of very heavily drive it – I mean, I, I'm a little bit biased when it comes to the SEO, SOP management software because we have System Hub, but I, I don't really mind. I mean, systemology works – with any platform and I've, I've got some clients who are making Dropbox work. I yeah. mean, Dropbox and Word documents, I mean, that's great level one. There's a lot of challenges that will come very quickly, but at least it gets you started. So I, I always just go simple, 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 simple. How do you get, and I think this is the next step around integration, how do you get your team to really own this? That's kind of what the integrate yeah. step's about, right? Yeah. And this comes from the idea, firstly, the biggest resistance that you are going to get um, happens the first time you introduce it because team members will go, yeah, I've always done it this way. Why do I have to change? Now, fortunately, because of the timing, I've never seen a better opportunity in all of history than to systemize your business than right now because change is everywhere. COVID and the pandemic mean that there are changing working conditions the team is going to be more accepting. If you say, right, we are going to systemize and we're going to follow the systemology approach, 
the resistance is the lowest it'll ever be because they're having change in their home life with kids working from home. They're working from home. They're sometimes working virtually, sometimes in the office. Like so much change is going on. It's perfect time to introduce it. Um, That said, though, the other thing to think about is always put yourself in the shoes of your staff and help them to understand the benefit of the systemization. And it will vary. Like some team members, we say things like, you know what it's like when you go on holidays and you take a week off and then when you come back, none of your work has been done. Your inbox is exploding with thousands of emails. Your tasks have piled up in your project management platform. And then you spend the next two months trying to make up for the one week that you had off. Well, if we can systemize, we can then get team members to take parts of your work and keep things moving. So when you come back, you can just hit the ground running. Now, that might work for some team members. Other team members, you might need to say, uh, hey, uh, I know you want to move up in the ranks in our organization, and I would love to give you more responsibility, but we need to make sure that we can delegate and pass on these jobs to lower cost team members so that I can give you these high levels of responsibility. So it's it's about understanding the individual. It's about helping them to see the benefit for why they would do it. Um, and and there is other resistance that pops up, and there are different ways to do it. But but there is a way that you introduce it and getting buy in early. Because if you remember the four stages in the pyramid, the top stage when they say this is how we do it here, you know you've reached the right level. One of the big breakthroughs that I had in my business, and it was in relation to this specifically, was creating. I always wanted freedom from my business to work on my business, not in my business. And I found just by my nature of like tinkering and I can see a problem and I can tend to think of a possible solution to that problem before anybody else because that's how my brain thinks. It doesn't, I should even say from experience, it is rarely a better decision, (laughs) if I might point that out, that my team would eventually come up with. But I, my, my nature is to trade speed for just getting it done, you know, more prolific, beats perfect, mm. you know, break stuff, get on with it, build the bike as, as you ride it type thing. Uh, and so because of that, I would get sucked back in and I would always have an answer for everything really quickly. And so despite my rhetoric of empowering team, my behavior, like you kind of mentioned earlier, was was not a, giving them the space to take real control and yet I had the frustration that I kept getting sucked into it and it wasn't until mm. you told the story about um, your 2IC kind of putting a line in the yes. sand and going, don't listen to David. I had the experience that it wasn't until I incentivized a couple of my key team not just with cash, but also just with their actual job roles and things that they were measured against every quarter was pushing me out of the business. Like we quantified it. We measured time. We put compression on my calendar. Glenn can't do anything on Mm. these days between these hours. And it was their job's performance to kick me out. Not entirely. It was just one of the metrics. Yes. And I found as soon as I did that, and they had the systems and the processes to run the business, the speed at which I was freed up from operational day-to-day, like the entire process took about six months and I was out forever. 
Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't until I incentivized it. So if any of you are listening and you can kind of, you've gone through this loop before, um, people very much respond to incentives, not just what David was talking about before in the sense of find out, you know, where their values lie and make sure you're pitching to them in such a way where they get that. But also potentially you just need to black and white it and go, you know, there, there yeah. needs to be a metric on my time. We need to get me from 60 hours a week to 40 hours a week. Your job is to find those extra 20 hours, work it out. Here's systemology, the book, yes. good luck. I <laughs> love it. Yeah, I, I love that. And there are a, a range of little um, hacks like that that make all the difference. And mm. the only way that you know that hack um, to speed it up is is through doing it. And I can tell that the level of insight just by identifying that, that you've gone through this and done it. A another one um, <laughs> that Melissa did, me, me being the um, uh, people pleaser that I, that I was, um, when staff would come to me and they say, can you help me solve this? And you're, you're, I was similar where I would say, oh, look, I can just do it, you know, I'll just leave it with me. And she said, no, how about we reframe this so it works better in my brain where what I would do is I'd say, yeah, I can help you. But the first thing that we do together is we go look inside System Hub to find is there a system that addresses that issue. So I tickled my little feeling of, yes, I'm being helpful. Uh, but what I was actually doing was training them. Well, Dave's just going to go into System Hub first. And it's I, I then got them into the habit of always going back to where the knowledge was first, the knowledge base, and it would only get escalated if there wasn't a solution or they couldn't find it. And then over time, we started to have uh, team members that were in control of the different departments. So it would get escalated to the department head first before it would get to me. So I would only see things that it would go through system hub first, department head first, and if it was still an issue, then it would get identified to me um, but usually Melissa would catch it before it gets to me. So little changes like that, if you are someone who feels like you have to help staff or, you know, you always find yourself defaulting into that, make a minor tweak to, to teach yourself to look for the system. Um, and it is, it's a case of going slow to go fast. If you get these systems and processes right, you start to solve problems once. Where most business owners get wrong is they or stuck, they solve the same problem over and over oh, and over and over and over yeah. and again. Or, but your job as a business owner is to solve it once. Or a problem that has been solved by thousands of other businesses over and over and over and over again, you know. Um, I, I used to have the, and it's almost like a kind of an old Puritan, maybe it's high school, school kind of mindset that, God, I've got to be working. My team aren't going to work unless I'm busy and I'm in it and kind of in the trenches with them, et cetera, et cetera. But it's funny, it, it got to a point where, and I mean, COVID's a great example. Lots and lots of businesses are discovering that they're very fragile. Um, businesses that are built around the founder's time are very, very fragile because humans are fragile. We get tired, we get burnt out. When we're tired and burnt out, we lose interest. When we lose interest, the, the edges start to fray. And in a competitive market, you can't have frayed edges. And, and my team realize that me being able to have three months off is one of the number one goals that they are focused on to make sure that our business is robust and, and as Nassim Taleb would say, anti-fragile. 
Like, because if the founder can be away for three months and the thing still works, it just implies that it is so much more reinforced against the yeah. market and not dependent on any one thing. And every single person in my team loves the idea that their job security is more secure the further yeah. away from the business that I am. And I think it's not until kind of business owners get, start to get that, uh, that mm. not just that, that your business valuation would double if you can go away from your, well, whatever it is, but it would go up a lot mm -hmm. when you can go away for three months and prove that the thing can still deliver on its promises without you. And I think that brings us to kind of the next phase around kind of scale. So, what do you mean by scale? You yeah. mentioned it earlier, but in context now. Yeah, so scale, this stage is about, if you think about the critical client flow, that's all about that core deliverable for that primary product or service. But obviously, outside of that, your business, there are other departments and there are other things that need to happen for the business to function. Now, it, it's still a case of effectively, we need to find the 80-20. So, I often think of my business in terms of the departments. There's marketing, sales, operations, HR, management, and finance. Uh, so, thinking about those different departments, the systems that we identified in the critical client flow will only fall into some of those departments. But we didn't touch anything about recruitment, you know, hiring and onboarding staff and managing staff. We didn't talk about paying wages. So, the scale stage is about identifying effectively, it's almost like a critical client flow, but for a department. So, think about your finance department. And I always start off by saying, think about the the periods of time as, as like little signposts. You might say, you know, things that happen regularly, things that happen weekly, things that happen monthly, things that happen quarterly, things that happen annually. So you write that down on a bit of paper and then just think, what are the critical ones? Well, every quarter I have to do my best. Every, you know, month I'm paying wages. Every annually. So you just want to identify the five to ten systems in that department. And in systemology, I kind of give the signposts in the book and I give some, some examples of what those critical systems are. And we just want to identify those because the scale stage is about identifying the systems that would be required for scale. If you're growing, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to need new staff. So you're going to need a way to hire them and then you want to indoctrinate them and train them into the way that you do business. Again, another lesson I learned from, from Michael, he said, every business is a school. I never used to get that until it kind of popped out at me. What you do as a business owner uh, and a business is you want to take untrained, unrefined talent or, or labor, and then you put them into your the machine that you've created and you're, you're training them up, you're skilling them up. And what is the quickest path that you can take to get them from not knowing anything to be able to profitably output and produce? So that's really what we think about scale is what are all of those other key systems that you would need to have your key team members take the holiday? So start off with the business owner. If they went away for three months, what things would be bottlenecking at them? We try and identify those and create the systems for scale at that point. And then it's just you circle back around in the systemology. Once you know what they are, you go back and you assign, you figure out who knows how to do it. Then we extract, 
then we organize uh, and it's the same process that you're already sort of starting to teach and then you embed it into your project management platform and you start to build out your database of the way your operating system, the way that the business functions. How does this build into a rhythm? Because we, we run on a, a a weekly and a quarterly and an annual kind of cadence yeah. uh, inside the business. And from my perspective, that is the thing that holds us together, uh, especially yeah. where we're reviewing certain things every week, every month, every quarter, uh, and every year in the same way that you kind of chunked it on. How, how do you, how do it, you, enforce might be the wrong word, but compliance is what's going, it's not so much a rejection from team going, we don't want to do it, but how do you kind of ensure that these things don't get forgotten and, and uh, yeah. not applied? How do you keep them fresh? How do you keep them current? What's the system for maintaining the system? Yeah, the, the there are a few um, points to touch on there. Definitely, one is around responsibility. So we we similarly have this cadence. Now, some people use traction. Some people read the twelve week year. Some people like there's lots of books that have frameworks for when you're doing certain meetings and what it is that you're reviewing. So I approach um, the systems related to that cadence just the same. So we have a weekly meeting with the team and there are certain things like throughout the week, we identify um, any problems that crop up and they go on a list inside Asana so that when we have our weekly team meeting, we all address it and we move through those. Then we just, uh, today actually, we had our quarterly meeting where we review um, our like the key dashboards to see metrics, like as far as leads that have come in and sales uh, and what that conversion rate's looking like. And we also have a look at the P&Ls and then we also have a look at what our 90-day rocks are. So it's a matter of you, you find out what your cadence is. And again, systemology is about just capturing what you're doing. I don't want you to re-engineer things just yet. We make it very simple. If you don't have these meetings that Glenn and I are talking about, don't feel that you need to insert them in just yet. But you might say, oh, I meet with my accountant every quarter and we review the BAS. Mm. Okay, we'll just start there. The whole goal of systemology is to first capture what it is that you're doing. We're not looking to re-engineer just yet. Um, so that was part of the piece. The other, the question was around reminding, like um, part of it is responsibility. So thinking in terms of uh, like for those meetings, Christian on our team, it's his responsibility to make sure that they're on the calendar, to make sure that we have the agenda set, to make sure that we all show up. So he's kind of checking in. You want to have the responsibility. Uh, and it's the same with systems. You always have a primary owner and you always have a secondary owner. Um, I, I'm not one... Uh, I mean, I'm not a big fan of things like ISO uh, accreditation because oftentimes they create a lot of systems just for the sake of ticking a box. Mm. The systems oftentimes aren't created for the team to use them. They're just to say, oh, I'm ISO accredited. Um, so part of ISO accreditation is that you have to have some sort of review mechanism where every year you review a system and is it current and up to date. What we do is we try and create a culture 
of when a problem is identified, the problem gets added to a problems list and then it gets addressed. And we, we go, is this a systems problem? Do we need to actually adjust and make the change? So it's actually for us a dynamic thing that happens throughout the year. We don't have a, a typical review process um, where we go after X amount of time. And I mean, this is about to lead into optimize. We haven't even talked about the final stage of systemization. Um, so, so maybe we transition into that. Um, but that leads into exactly what you're talking about. Now, once you've captured what it is that you're doing, how do you strategically improve? How do you pinpoint in the business? The problem is here and we have to re-engineer this piece of the business. Um, so that, but, but before I move to that last one, any other things pop up for you? Uh, under the scale stage no i love it i mean look other other than i think to to step back again as the founder is to really recognize that it's your job to drive value uh and what these systems do is they consolidate your capacity for value delivery um not only mm. does that tend to lead to better outcomes for customers, not only does it tend to lead to better experiences for team uh, because your team don't want to be going to work into, in a state of chaos and overwhelm. Um, I, we had the worst churn rate for about three years. The same period we became the ninth fastest growing company in Australia, I was losing two or three team a quarter. It was horrendous mm. um, because... I didn't understand what I understand now, not just about systems and processes, but about just general leadership and delegation and being able to provide autonomy and staying out of their way, but yet giving them a process to implement, et cetera. And so we grew as the complexity grew and it just crushed people. And I carried mm -hmm. quite a bit of guilt for quite a while because of the you know, the emotional pressure that the company that I had built mm. was putting people under. So, you know, this idea of this idea of having a methodology, it's not just good for you, it's good for your clients, it's good for your team, um, and it's good for your company's valuation. Like you said, building something, um, even if you don't want to sell it, the best time to sell a business is when you don't want to sell it. Um, you you, you mm -hmm. don't tend to get the price you're looking for when the thing sucks, you hate it, it's taking up too much of your time, it's not making you enough money, you know, that's not a good place to sell your yeah. business. The best place to sell your business is when, yeah, you take three to four months off a year, you only do the stuff that you really enjoy that's in your zone of genius, it gives you a great platform for expression, then someone comes along and offers you a big number and you're like, nah, I'm good. Like, <laughs> that's kind of the place that you want to be, right? And I think that leads to Step seven, yeah, optimize. Yeah, and and the uh, I had someone who is a long time user of System Hub, uh, and they were getting great results. They emailed me. I remember this story because it stuck out like a sore thumb. They emailed me and they said, "I want to unsubscribe." And I was like, "Oh, I don't quite understand. You're using the platform. I can tell all your staff are using it regularly. You've got your business completely systemized. What's happened?" Uh, and she said, um, the, the, her name was Jeanette. She runs a company called uh, Diggy Doggy Daycare. And it's a doggy daycare center where, you know, people take their pooch and they leave it for the day and they walk them and they comb them. That you can, you know, she could even watch it on her phone. You know, they'd have little webcams set up. And uh, it, was, it was a really fun business. And she'd been in that business for 10 years. 
And um, after 10 years, she had made the decision that she wanted to sell. And she, having a financial background, she knew that the two things that the uh, potential acquirer wanted to see uh, was financial performance and the systems. So she got to work on it. That's why she signed up to System Hub, why she went through systemology to extract herself out of the business. Towards the end of the process, she achieved that goal. And then she kind of put the flag out um, to let people know that this was potentially now up for sale. She she got approached by a, a national company because it was here in Australia um, that bought the company and they cited two things. She hit the nail on the head. They said, financial performance, this business is, is rock solid. Um, and because you've systemized it, we actually see the business that you've built as the franchise prototype. We want to roll Diggy Doggy Daycare out Australia-wide. And what the company had done, they're a big corporate, so they built this high-end system that housed all of their knowledge and everything. So they just downloaded everything out of System Hub and then they uploaded it into their platform, so that's why she was unsubscribing. What a and win. for me, even though she was unsubscribing, that was a huge that's a win victory, for yeah. me. She got, she got a tremendous multiple because it was a phenomenal business that was working without her and the acquirer knew it. And so, I mean, that's one reason you might sell. Um, other times you might get forced into it. I, I mean, I touched on that briefly with you. I recently sold my digital agency mm. and I never planned to sell that business. Uh, I I got it to a point where it was systemized. Melissa was running it. And then Melissa, um, she had some personal things. Um, she had to fly back to the States. And when she came back, she said, I, I have to move back to the States. Um, and she resigned. Melissa had been with me for three years. I'd been out of the business. I'd even lost the passion for the digital marketing side of things. And I didn't relish in the idea of having to go back into the business to find the new CEO to train them up. But because it was systemized, um, I it put it gave me options. And I was within two months, I was able to find a buyer. I was able to get them into the business uh, and they took over and I got a really good multiple for a digital agency where it was a business that I wasn't planning on selling. Like every quarter I would get a profit distribution for almost zero time on my behalf because Melissa was running it. But those circumstances change. And I think if it wasn't systemized, it wouldn't have been valuable. I would have had a job, not a business, and I, it would have been a fire sale. But, but I built it to the point where it gave me the option. So never think that, as Glenn said, you might not want to sell it, but you also, you don't know what's going to happen. Like the, the pandemic might completely take you by surprise and pop out of nowhere. Um, and you want to make sure that you can adjust accordingly. I digress. Sorry, you did ask me the final, the final one, optimise. Um, so for optimise, this, this one uh, speaks to as we said earlier, the myth that you need to systemize like McDonald's. Don't start with perfect. Capture what you're doing. Wait until the last step of systemology is to optimize. I think if you get a baseline, the good thing about getting all of these base levels in place, then when you introduce your dashboards, your dashboards and your metrics mean something because now everybody's following a consistent approach, which means if you do spot a problem, you can now say, great, I want to improve that part. Let's look at re-engineering that system. We'll pull it out, rework it, put it back in the system. And now you can actually see the improvement on the metric, which is a much more strategic way to be optimizing. So, so when, when, I, you, I talk, say, when you talk about a dashboard, right, I think 
I think it's easy to think about a dashboard for like sales and marketing, like this amount of leads, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're talking about like a process or a system, like you said, for, you know, when I, uh, s- the way we transact our payroll, for example, that that kind of system and interface between the accountant, et cetera, et cetera. Like, uh, how do you think about dashboards? Yeah. And what do you look at? Like, you know, you do have a a particular point, which is around how many metrics is too many metrics to track, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, these days, gaining data is not the problem of the business owner. We are overwhelmed with Google Analytics data, which will tell you everything under the sun. You'll pull metrics from your sales platform through to your marketing automation. Your zero can pump out these reports where the numbers can be manipulated. Like data is not your problem. So oftentimes it's around for a dashboard. It is identifying the key metrics. That's a real key part of it. Initially, it, it, you might already have a dashboard in place um, and that's that's fine. As you read through the chapter, I might make some tweaks. If you don't have a dashboard in place, just start off finding a key metric for each step in the critical client flow. Think about, well, how many leads do you get? How many sales do you get? What's your average dollar sale? What's your profit margin? Or maybe you think, how long does it take you to for you to deliver the product or service? How many times do people take to come back? You, you just want to start with something, get some metrics down. I, the, What dashboards are is imagine uh, it's, it's almost like having a stethoscope that allows you to listen to the patient. Your business is the patient. And all you're looking at doing in a dashboard is to try and identify if something's wrong or not quite right or can be improved and optimise the metrics give you identification on where to look. So usually what we do is we um, we have this thing, as I said, we build it into our culture where we identify problems. They appear on this problems list that then gets addressed in these meetings. Now, when they get addressed, we try and see sometimes it's a quick solve. Sometimes we've got to understand it more. So you have to dig into the numbers. Maybe you create a new metric or maybe it's already covered under an existing metric. So you can try and get to the the root cause of the problem. And then when you introduce a solution, it's much easier to see, well, did the solution that we create, create the desired or intended outcome that we were looking for? So we had this problem that kept on recurring where um, we found this was in the digital agency business. Um, we, we had to always be chasing some clients. There were a handful of them. And when new clients would come on board, we'd chase them to get them to pay. We were doing the work. We issued the invoice on time, but they might be 60, 90 days late for playing. And that wasn't ideal because, you know, I needed to pay wages uh, on time every single month. Put my, you behind your cash flow curve. Yeah. So we identified it as a problem and then it surfaced up and then we started to go, okay, well, how can we address this? We had a look at one of the metrics that we looked at was, um, uh, you know, days debtors, how, how long it would take for someone to pay that invoice. We tried one change. We set up some automatic reminders in zero and things like that, thinking, great, maybe that's going to remind them. You know, the emails got progressively more full on. Hey, we're about to stop doing work. Hey, you know, it's really serious now. Hey, we have stopped work. 
they marginally improved the problem, but not really, because people were just ignoring these automatic emails. So it, it surfaced again on the issues list. And then we thought, okay, well, it's a problem that hasn't been resolved by that first tweak. And then we discussed it and we ended up making the change where we, we invoiced uh, all up front uh, for things like our SEO starter pack uh, and work wouldn't start until the client had paid. And when they actually signed up for recurring work, they had to go on to automatic billing or we wouldn't have them. So we talked about some of the pros and cons. We decided if it's something that we want to do um, and then we rolled it out. And then obviously that that solved our problem very quickly. But those sorts of problems, there's lots. You just need to have a forum for identifying the issue when it comes up, having a mechanism for discussing it, and then always looking for the system solution first. And that's really what optimization is about yeah i love it this this marries so well uh we run a system called better every quarter which it started off as our sort of our internal dent operating system and and now it's become a a tool that we kind of help our clients run and it is that cadence and we have what's called the awareness list and and there's a few things to tune into your awareness one is from the actual human experience, like what do we see, what's working, what's not working, what are some opportunities, what are threats, just basic stuff, what's on your mind? And it might be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're not getting back to, you know, requests fast enough, right? And it goes on the awareness list. And that's just this this catch-all because the problem that I used to have is people used to bring me problems all the time uh, and I was yes. drowning in problems. And it's like intellectually I knew that that was a good idea, but effectively, I was just constantly being hit with everything that was wrong. And you know, I just think I have a reasonable constitution, but that started to wear thin after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you got to hear your team and all that kind of stuff. And you certainly don't want to train people to ignore problems, right? So this idea of, and we just use Google Sheets. People just, or, yep. or tr- we started with Google Sheets. I think we're on Trello now. Um, I just ping them off as audios and, and Rena transcribes it across. But this idea of having a, a catcher bucket for awareness and okay. issues and the other tool we use to trigger awareness is, and we recommend if a business is sort of under eh, 250, 300,000, there are really three primary metrics you want to track and it'll be different between industries. Between kind of 250, 300 and 750, maybe there's five and a, uh, 750 and up, you really want to top out at about what are the seven metrics and we call it the sand uh, sand metric. Sand stands for sleep at night dashboard. It yeah. also stands for if you're on the beach in Hawaii and your 2IC was pinging you a message every week and all the metrics were green, you were on track. And if that was the case, you could stay on the beach. What would those metrics need to be? So it's kind of like, yeah, how do you quantify it. a dream stable business? Yeah. And what we tend to find is that if we've picked our metrics right, and if our team are checking in with each other and sharing what's on their awareness and we're observing that, that tends to tune us in pretty effectively to what's mm. working or what's not and what needs improving. And, and what I'm kind of getting from you is that that is the point that then systemology can click in and you can just follow the process for building the process, right? 100%. And then there, there are ways to accelerate as well where Love a good um, accelerator. And that's where you might l- l- lean into something like um, a, a KPI or um, a, 
a particular something where someone has mastered something, um, that's where you might bring a consultant in. So systemology gets you up to the baseline and then you might have a particular problem. You might get up to this point and go, oh, you know, I, I don't have enough leads coming in. Okay, well, then you lean on the expert, you know, KPI, where they've done all the systems for that piece. Or maybe your problem is financial. So you go get a CFO, part-time CFO to come in and they might help to quickly restructure things. So sometimes you can listen and sometimes you get the expert and they just shortcut the learning as well. Depends on where you're at, and um, but, but you at least have to have a baseline in place. Mate, I love it. In your experience of people applying all this, what are what are some of the biggest mistakes that people will come unstuck? Where do where do they trip themselves up? Because I'm I'm known for getting gung ho on a on a new way. Love a good way. Love yes. a good hack. Love a, a good operate. Yes. Love a new app. I can kind of set up and it'll just have it. What are the what are the mistakes to avoid? I think I mean one of the biggest ones, and there there are a few, but probably the the biggest is inserting themselves in the process too much. The business owner feels like they need to be the one. I think the sooner that the business owner can recognise that they've got smart team members and they can empower them, they use the critical client flow to simplify it so they don't get overwhelmed and then they pass this responsibility. They identify the systems champion in their business who can lead the charge on this. If they do that, they'll have a tremendous breakthrough. Uh, I think some of the other things that kind of get in the way is is that perfectionism as well. I, I see that very commonly where people are trying to re-engineer things as they go through the process. So they're trying to go, oh, not what are we currently doing, but rather what would we like to do? They might go, oh, we'd like this particular lead generation method or, hey, we want to insert marketing automation here. And they they try and re-engineer it as they go. But then that becomes uh, just another stumbling block and a roadblock that makes them um, not get the result. Uh, I think that that's probably another common problem. Uh, really, it's just not starting as well. That's the biggest thing. Hopefully, when someone listens to this and they realise that, you and I, we're creators. We've built systemized businesses. We we don't necessarily love the systems themselves or the documenting. It's the result of the systems that we love and the opportunity that it brings and the space that it gives us. Fall in love with that. Don't fall in love with the idea of the systems and the processes and then find the people who love that side of things and then let them do that. So you can focus on your area of genius and then you can let that operations person focusing on what they do good. That's really well said, mate. I'm uh, I'm not sure if there's a hell of a lot further we can go without actually getting into someone's business and and pulling it apart. Uh, are there any kind of final words or a, a perspective that you would love to leave someone with? Obviously, I highly, highly recommend everyone check out systemology.com forward slash the book or just book? Book. Just book, yes, book. yeah. Um, and again, doesn't matter when you're listening to this, uh, that will lead to the rabbit hole uh, of systemology. Yes. Um, so to bring this to a close, David, any final words? I think the biggest thing to think is that you as a business owner, you're here to 
make a dent in the universe. That's why you're listening to this podcast. You know systems and processes are important. They're just very rarely urgent. And if if you want to take your message global, you can't do it on your own. You're going to need great team and you're going to need great systems. So now's the time. It's never been easier with all the changes that are going on. Your team is open for change. Go ahead, get yourself a copy of the book, systemology.com forward slash book, and let's make this happen. I, I know we can do it together. Uh, if you've got any questions, just reach out. Da, 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 da. <laughs> so, yeah, th- I just want to thank you as well, Glenn, for having me on the Mate, show. Mate, I was going to say, this has been awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate the platform. You guys have built an amazing business, an amazing audience. I was very fortunate to do some good work with you guys early on with the Accelerator and you graciously had me come along to uh, one of your uh, pitch nights and I got to judge one of those as well. Um, and I just love what you guys do. And, and I mean, I've been spreading the KPI message for a long time and we'll continue to because it's just so solid and fits like a glove with the work that we do well, as well. I mean, it really does. We see there's three phases, right? You've got to start off by delivering remarkable value. Once you've worked that out, you've got to expand your ability to influence. Once you've worked that out, you've got to drive performance. And I think, you know, where, where KPI and systemology and better every quarter kind of come together at that nexus is is just really powerful. Really looking forward to having you join our mentor faculty as well coming up later this year to start to talk to our sort of inner circle members on, you know, doing a little bit of a deep dive and an asset sprint for them. Mate, I'm just just pumped. But more than anything, I love talking to practitioners, you know, and you've done it. You you built the business first where you rolled yourself out through a, a CEO. Then you were able to roll yourself out through a sale. Then you build a software platform that's scaling around the world. And, you know, now you've your first book, uh, your second book, I mean, you are the, the key person of influence. You are standing out. You are scaling up. You are making a dent in the universe. That's what this kind of podcast is all about, not for any reason other than the fact that, A, I really love talking to people making a dent in the universe and I just don't think there's ever been a better time or a more necessary time for business mm-hmm. owners to have the space to make the difference that they're here to make and, and make you make that possible. So thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right, ladies and gentlemen, um, if you want to build systems, four things you got to do. First, systemology.com forward slash book and the other three are be brave, have fun, <laughs> let's go make a dent in the universe.